The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to our special coverage of COP26 and the G20. Now, of course, we are live here in Glasgow. We are live in Rome. And, of course, we have Jeff in the London studio. These are your headlines. It's one minute to midnight and we need to act now, warns the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson as world leaders arrive for the landmark climate summit. If we don't act now, the Paris Agreement will be looked at in the future, not as the moment humanity opened its eyes to the problem, but the moment we flinched and turned away. But some voiced disappointment at a lack of progress at the G20 meeting, with President Biden calling out Russia, China and Saudi Arabia for their lack of climate commitments. You're going to see we've made significant progress and uh, more has to be done. But uh, it's going to require us to uh, continue to focus on what China's not doing, what Russia's not doing and what Saudi Arabia's not doing. Here in Rome, the White House and Brussels set aside their differences on steel tariffs, while Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi tells CNBC he is more hopeful about multilateralism. Something has changed. I think the, and what's changed is the uh, assessment that without cooperation, we go nowhere. Asian markets kick off the month broadly higher, with the Nikkei leading the gains as Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party retains its parliamentary majority. Uh, welcome to Glasgow. We've got a huge, huge couple of weeks of coverage coming up uh, here uh, from the second city of Scotland as well. Six years on, six years on from the Paris Agreement when CNBC and myself, we were in Le Bourget, Paris, and a pandemic later, well, world leaders are now coming together in an effort to enhance their commitment to climate goals. But with heads of state uh, from global heavyweights such as China and Russia not attending these talks, questions have already been raised as to how much can be achieved over the next couple of weeks of negotiations. Now, ahead of the COP summit, the G20 leaders formally pledged to cap global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius and to stop funding overseas coal power plants. However, Critics say the final communique fails to offer any concrete and meaningful commitments to tackle climate change. So speaking on the back of the G20, the US President Joe Biden, who of course is en route to Glasgow, insisted progress made in Rome would be carried over to Glasgow but did accuse Moscow and Beijing, whose leaders are not set to attend the COP summit, uh, of failing to live up to their climate commitments. The disappointment relates to the fact that Russia and, uh, and, uh, and uh, including uh, not only Russia, but China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change. And there's a reason why people should be disappointed in that. Um, I, I, I found it disappointing myself. 
But what we did do, we passed a number of things here to end the, uh, the subsidization of coal. We made commitments here from across the board, all of us, in terms of what we're going to bring to uh, the G26. Uh, and uh, and I think, you know, as that old bad, that old trite saying goes, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I think you're going to see we've made significant progress and uh, more has to be done. But uh, it's going to require us to... Uh, continue to focus on what China's not doing, what Russia's not doing, and what Saudi Arabia's not doing. Today, the presidents and prime ministers of over 120 countries will start arriving at the venue from 9 o'clock CET. Host Boris Johnson will give an opening speech at around 1300 CET, while other national leaders will give a series of statements throughout the afternoon. Johnson is set to announce an additional one billion pounds in climate financing today and urge other nations to follow suit. Speaking Sunday at the G20, Johnson said environmental commitments made so far will be looked back on as empty promises unless stronger actions are taken here at the COP summit. If we don't act now, the Paris Agreement will be looked at in the future, not as the moment humanity opened its eyes to the problem but the moment we flinched and turned away. We've seen some progress in the last few days and weeks. Saudi Arabia, Australia, and Russia have all made net zero commitments, meaning 80% of the global economy will wipe out its contribution to climate change by the middle of the century, up from 30%, thanks to the UK's COP26 leadership. Countries such as the United States have doubled their spending on climate aid. Every nation at this weekend's summit will end the financial support for international unabated coal projects by the end of this year. But these commitments, welcome as they are, are drops in a rapidly warming ocean when we consider the challenge we've all admitted is ahead of us. Right, there's so much to say, but I want to break it down and make it very, very simple for our audience as well. There is a long list of achievements that can be made, are hoped to be made, many feel won't be made here at COP26. There is a short list of achievements that will make it a success. And of course, by virtue of not achieving those, will make it a failure. Let me make the short list very simple for everybody out there as well. I'm going to put two things on the list. One is climate financing. Two is NDCs. And if I can give you the long list later on, we're here for weeks, so don't worry about it. We will get through this as well. But the short list of success is one, can we get commitments from a whole host of countries who are balking uh, at the targets that they were made not only in 2015, but also in 2009, uh, the summit that Jeff was at in Copenhagen as well at the COP15. Then, of course, they, they endorse at the COP21 in Paris that I was at and now are expected to endorse once again here at COP26. But if they make those NDCs, uh, then great, we're, we're on track. And if we can get China, India, Brazil, a lot of countries whose leaders are not coming here to have renewed commitments and better commitments, then that will be a success. The second point of it uh, is the financing as well. And this has been unambiguously a failure. And this is not going back 
uh, to when I was at the Bourget for COP21. It's going back to when Jeff was in Copenhagen for COP15 because the rich nation said, as part of the deal, what we will do is we will give you $100 billion a year in order to help this transition because we, the rich nations, are the ones who've created most of this problem historically from post-industrial times to now as well. We have created 80% of the carbon emissions that have ever been created. So to pay for your transition and make it greener, we will give you $100 billion a year. Well, the money that turned up the last two years was circa $80 billion both of those years. So that money has to start coming forward if these other nations are going to be dragged into better NDC. So that's my very short list. Two key bullets that will make this meeting a success or a failure. I can give you my long list. It's got nine or ten, but I'll probably do that a little bit later. Well, just pick up on your point about climate financing and the situation we're in now that the rich countries of the world have made this promise to deliver $100 billion a year to poorer nations. They haven't delivered. So now to expect those poorer nations to come in with stronger commitments. It's a lot to ask considering they've been promised before, made promises before, and they haven't been followed up on. And I think China is central um, as well, would just add to the debate here. President Xi Jinping not attending this event. And I think many have been disappointed with the commitments that Beijing has made so far, in particular, when they plan to hit peak emissions 2030. And the longer they wait to hit peak emissions, the harder it will be to then meet their net zero targets later on. So China, very central um, to getting climate change under control. And President Xi's absence, I think, already being felt. Jeff. Yeah, look, if if the G20 was a dress rehearsal for what ultimately we're anticipating at this COP meeting, then I'm afraid it fell somewhat short, didn't it? We're going to talk a a bit about this G20 meeting uh, in a few moments and hear some sound from it. But effectively, even though we had what was a commitment to this one and a half degree number, what we didn't get was any commitment about a timetable to remove coal as a as an energy source. We didn't get any firm commitment to 2050 as a deadline for everybody to agree to a, a net zero target. We know some countries have talked about 2060, like China and Russia, but, but there doesn't seem to be any coalescing around the number of 2050, which has been put out there as a bold target, I think, for a lot of countries. So, Looking at the short-term omens here, it does feel as though we come into this COP event with expectations relatively low. Now, I'm, I'm trying to be positive about that because, if anything, maybe that gives countries the opportunity here to announce something more significant and be seen to be um, uh, supporting the event, supporting the goals, supporting the broader agenda. But quite frankly, the fact that we're talking about a COP 26 meeting shows you how glacial the pace appears to be moving towards these uh, bold goals that I think everybody acknowledges are necessary to be achieved if that one and a half degree warming number means anything at all at this stage. So I think as we as we prime ourselves and as we prime our audience running into this COP26 meeting, uh, I think we all need to be aware just how low expectations appear to be. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And let me just make two very quick points, and we're going to move on from this as well. Uh, one, India played a very canny game at the COP21 and were a very key part of the negotiation. I remember standing there at the Bourget, uh, Mamahan Singh, of course, was the, the leader of India then as well, who just kept his cards very close to his chest until very late on in the negotiations. And I expect Narendra Modi uh, to do exactly the same in India's interest this time around. The other thing I will say is as well, when we're talking about targets at the moment, all the NDCs, this is the 
nationally determined contributions that every single nation will put forward themselves. They're pretty binding, although how you get there uh, within those is less binding. So we want some verification on that as well. But at the moment, with all those in place, Temperatures would cap out at 2.7% higher than pre-industrial times by the end of this century. That is a massive failure for the planet, massive failure for the whole COP process as well. So at the moment, we are on a collision course with even more catastrophic uh, climate uh, problems throughout this century as well. So at the moment, the commitments are nowhere near where they need to be. But again, we'll talk about a lot of this over the next couple of weeks. So let's move on. The United States and the European Union have agreed to lift steel and aluminium tariffs and suspend WTO disputes against each other. The agreement signed on the sidelines of the aforementioned G20 summit is a step towards resolving a trade dispute that has hurt relations since the Trump administration. The two sides also agreed to encourage low carbon intensity steel and aluminium production. Now, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, says the agreement marks a new dawn in EU-US relations. We have today agreed to suspend the tariffs on steel and aluminium and to start the work on a new global sustainable steel arrangement. And this marks a milestone in uh, the renewed EU-US partnership. And it is our global first in our efforts to achieve the decarbonization of the global steel production and trade. G20 leaders have agreed to try to try to cap global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, but did not set a deadline for net zero emissions. And of course, that's a nod to what we were just saying about those uh, emissions from China. Uh, they urge meaningful and effective action, but face criticism for a lack of concrete plans, leaving plenty of work to be done at the COP26. Well, Sylvia, who joins us uh, from the sidelines of what was a very interesting conference in Rome as well. Sylvia, people say the G7 uh, doesn't have the global um, preeminence anymore as well uh, to in order to get all these big nations on board. Well, it seems the G20, and I looked at the statement you sent through, the huge lengthy communique. There was a lot of flim flam in there. A lot of, as dare I say, Greta Thunberg might say, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, indeed, 17 pages of a joint statement. But in fact, the publication of that joint communique was actually a success for the Prime Minister of Italy, Mario Draghi, because on Friday, Steve, some people were a little bit cautious as to whether that was going to be the case, whether the G20 would come together to sign a joint statement that would include language on climate. And indeed, that ended up being the case. But as you mentioned there, the question mark now is to how what the concrete action will be from these members to achieve carbon neutrality going forward and indeed in their joint statement they just went as far as saying that they will pursue efforts to limit the rise in global temperatures to 1.5 degree celsius and they will they also said that they want to do more within this decade that was as far as they went here in rome but when 
we come to that last point, Steve, they also said that it would be within the national circumstances. So the language that the leaders here in Rome used gives them leeway um, to potentially in the future to be a bit slower when it comes to climate change. But as you mentioned there, the G7, the G20, the meeting here in Rome is also a good moment to reflect on multilateralism. And with Angela Merkel leaving Germany, the chancellor in Germany, I should say, with the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, preparing for an election next year, there's also a question as to whether Mario Draghi is the true European leader uh, essentially supporting multilateralism. And I asked him yesterday if he feels that way, if he thinks he is the true European leader when it comes to multilateralism. Let's take a look. Something has changed. I think the, and what's changed is the uh, assessment that without cooperation, we go nowhere on issues like climate, on issues like health, on issues like poverty. We go nowhere. And uh, the form of cooperation we know best is multilateralism. And we know best because we have rules. And these rules have been written a long time ago, and they granted us a long period of prosperity. Some of these rules ought to be changed now, it's quite clear. But the way to change these rules is to do it together. And that's where I think things have improved and have changed. So the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi did say that he's more hopeful about multilateralism after the experience he had here in Rome over the weekend. But Steve, now another question for multilateralism will be how much success COP26 will achieve there in Glasgow? Yeah, I, I think you're making the absolute point. And I, and I heard, uh, thank you very much indeed for that, by the way, Sylvia. And I heard your comments on Capital Connection about the Chinese leader not being here. Of course, he is addressing by video link and we know there's an enormous Chinese delegation. So how much power that delegation will have uh, to, to move towards uh, swifter targets, um, getting quicker uh, to net zero emissions, the world wants them to do it by 2050. At the moment, they're saying 2060. That remains to be seen. But uh, there's lots of nuances beneath the surface here of what's going to be absolutely fascinating. I've already bumped into uh, the head of the UNFCCC uh, yesterday and, and the former head as well. And maybe we'll give you some sound uh, from that a little bit later on. OK, coming up uh, on today's show, we are going to be speaking to UN climate champion for COP26, Nigel Topping. Uh, catch that interview. That is live on Squawk at 9.15 Central Europe. European time. Then uh, stay tuned as later in the morning we're going to hear from the Prime Minister of Iceland about her country's efforts to meet its climate goals. And let me set the scene for what else you can expect to hear from us from for the rest of the week. We also hear from other heads of state throughout the week, including Costa Rican President Carlos Alvarado. We get more policy perspective from South Korea's environment minister and the high representative of the least developed countries for the UN, Courtney Rattray. And for the corporate view, we're joined by London Stock Exchange CEO Julia Hoggett, AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Sorio, Nokia Chief Pekka Lundmark, and Santander Chairwoman Anna Botin. All those interviews are coming up this week. And for more coverage from the COP Summit, including a detailed breakdown of all the key issues at stake over the next two weeks, you can head online to CNBC.com. 
And still to come, Ryanair's air traffic jumps by around 130% in the first half of this year compared to 2020. CEO Michael O'Leary will help us dig into the carrier's latest numbers. That coming in just a moment. Stay with us. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. Ryanair has posted its first quarterly profit since the end of 2019 before the pandemic disrupted the travel industry. The Irish airline operated more flights this summer than any other European rival. But the company warning that it expects to report a loss of about 200 million euros for the full year. Michael O'Leary is the CEO of Ryanair and joins us now. Michael, welcome back. Good to see you. Um, Well, congratulations on the numbers in what is a very tough time for the airline sector. How much visibility have you got running into next year? Uh, good morning, Jeff, and to your viewers. It's great to be with you again. Um, I think we have very strong visibility on volumes. I think it's a little bit more uncertain what the pricing outcome will be. But essentially, since the 1st of July last, when the Europeans introduced the digital COVID certificate, the UK removed the restrictions in September, we've been returning very strongly. We've been operating at an 80% plus load factors. Uh, and I think we, we are, we're carrying now uh, 10.5 million passengers in September. And I think for October, we'll release the October figures tomorrow, we went just over 11 million passengers. So we're running at about 90% of our pre-COVID capacity. Load factors are about 10% lower, but pricing is a little bit weaker. Uh, as we said, in the first half of the year, the pricing was off about 30%. I think we'll do better in the second half of the year probably off maybe 10, 15%, we'll have to continue to stimulate. But we had very strong bookings over the October midterm. Christmas looks extraordinarily strong. I think everybody who's been locked up for 18 months are going to visit friends and family over Christmas. And I think that takes us into a very strong recovery in the spring and summer of 2022, uh, uh, as long as there's no adverse COVID developments. Yeah, just uh, on that price stimulation, as you describe it, Michael, obviously offering more attractive fares than you would have pre-COVID. By what measure are these short of the pre-COVID run rate? Um, And how long do you think you're going to have to keep this price stimulation in place? I I think through, you know, the off-peak shoulder periods of the winter, uh, October midterm break was very strong. Christmas will be very strong. I think spring midterm break will be very strong. Easter will be very strong. But in between that, in the middle of October, early December, late January, we'll be stimulating with very aggressive low pricing. And you see that in our half-year numbers. You know, people will focus on the fact that we doubled our traffic in the half year. Revenues have uh, gone up by only 80, 83%. But what's more dramatic is our costs have only risen by 63%. So we can afford to sell these lower fares because we've taken out so much cost uh, during the COVID-19 period. And we're taking delivery from Boeing of the new uh, the, the game changer aircraft. We're about 30 in the fleet now. By next summer, we'll have 65 of those aircraft. 
which creates an enormous growth opportunity for Ryanair to expand at airports all over Europe. And these airports are doing deals with us. Governments are supporting them to recover their pre-COVID traffic. Mike, very good morning to you from uh, Glasgow COP26. You and I had an extensive conversation, of course, about the environment. Uh, and Ryanair's place within the environment. Um, viewers can find that online. But look, you're saying in your copy today that you can grow and cut emissions at the same time. Just share with our viewers who haven't seen uh, you and I talking about this, uh, how you can actually do that. Well, there's two fundamental elements to it, uh, uh, Steve, as you know. Anybody transferring from one of the older legacy carriers in Europe to flying Ryanair is reducing their emissions by 50% straight away. We have much younger aircraft. We fly with higher load factors, uh, much more environmentally efficient way of traveling around Europe. But to add to that, we're going to invest up to $20 billion in a fleet of new. We're taking delivery of 210 new Boeing Game Changer aircraft over the next five years. These aircraft offer 4% more seats, but they burn 16% less fuel and 40% lower noise emissions. So uh, we're committed to growing strongly in the next uh, five years across Europe, but doing so by significantly reducing our environmental footprint from an airline that's already Europe's greenest, cleanest major airline. And I guess the message there from the first part of your answer is that there are airlines out there that are running unbelievably inefficient fleets as well, who are getting a vast amount of state support. It's an old um, issue that you've brought up many times as well. We've just got too many airlines out there still, Mike, haven't we? We have, and I think a lot of what the older airlines do, they have older aircraft, they, you know, business class, uh, and the EU is not helping this. Like the EU is proposing taxing intra-EU air travel while exempting long-haul air travel because they don't want to upset the Chinese or the Americans or the Russians. And what's remarkable about the European Union's uh, air travel emissions is that over 50% of them are caused by just 6% of the flights, the long-haul flights. Less than 50% are caused by all the short-haul flights. And yet the European Commission is proposing taxing the short-haul flights, Europe citizens, and yet exempting the Chinese, the Americans and the Asians, which is bizarre. You know, if one of the things we need to do out of COP is to have a lot more honesty from Europe's governments about where the emissions are being generated within air travel. And it is, in, in essence, the long haul, the business class, the inefficient, wasteful flights. And we need to encourage more people to switch to the short haul, the environmentally efficient flying, which is led by Ryanair. Michael, um, buried in the, the numbers is a line about a potential LSE delisting here. How close are you to making a decision on whether that's going to happen? And, and just walk us through the reasoning for doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an inevitable. I think it's something that will inevitably happen, Jeff, in the next six months. You know, once uh, post Brexit, a lot of our share dealing has transferred to Dublin and Euronext. More than uh, almost half our stock is held in ADRs on the Nasdaq. Really, uh, the, the trading is shriveling in the London uh, Stock Exchange. But we're under, uh, there's a regulatory requirement that uh, all EU airlines must, must be majority EU owned. Uh, at the moment, we're just over a third EU owned. We've removed the voting rights from the non-EU shareholders so that we're fully, we're 100% EU controlled. But I think you will see us continue to have some forced sell downs of non-European share, non-European shareholders who've purchased share, ordinary shares in Ryanair in the last 12 months. And I think an inevitable part of that process will be a London delisting uh, sometime, I think, in the, in the next six months. It will be sad to leave the London Stock Exchange, but I think it's one of the inevitable byproducts of Brexit, sadly.
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.